Welcome to the Drill Down. We've got business stories behind stocks on the move. I'm Corey Johnson with episode number 238. Well, just ahead, wow, the big story is AI, even for one of the oldest companies in technology, IBM, turns it around. And ServiceNow has got AI out of the box and it's working with a really strong quarterly result and the story of AI developing drugs. And a fascinating conversation with Samsara CEO Sanjit Biswas. His company is using live technology and, yes, AI for heavy equipment, bulldozers, trash machines, garbage trucks, you name it. Fascinating company, logistics, AI, all at once in real time, and that's working too. But first, it's sponsor time. The Drill Down is brought to you by Braintrust, a global talent network that matches highly skilled technical freelancers with the world's most reputable brands. Braintrust has helped clients like Bank of America, Goldman Sachs, Porsche, Under Armour, and more build agile tech teams fast at a fraction of the cost. Visit Braintrust.com, that's B-R-A-I-N-T-R-U-S-T.com to learn more. And get 20% off when you use our link, Braintrust.com slash Drill Down. All right, I'm Futurums Chief Market Strategist, Corey Johnson. Welcome to Futurums The Drill Down. We've got the business stories behind stocks on the move. And join me on the mic today, and always, Ben Wilson, who, of course, has been with us from the very start. Here we are in episode 238. How about that, Ben? 238. What a wild journey. Well, I apologize. My so nose far. is stuffed, but it seems like this episode is stuffed with knowledge. So we'll focus on that. We shall see. We can only hope. Corey, what stocks are you drilling down on today? I want to start with IBM. IBM. Trades with a ticker IBM. Shocker. And with a market cap of about $159 billion. Shares were up 5% in the last week, but for the last 12 months, shares are up 23%. So not a bad year. What's the latest with IBM? Well, this is a company that I had so much fun beating up on for so long. But in the quarter, they reported uh, this week revenue, $17.4 billion up. 4%. Profits, $3.3 billion, up 21%. And that's really good. But let's take a step back here and talk about IBM historically, because revenues were up for the year again. Now, look, I've been covering IBM for a long time, and uh, it was fun to beat up on these guys, because every year they would talk about how great the results were, and every quarter they talk about how great the results were. And every year, I'd, and every quarter, I'd go on the air saying, yeah, the numbers are down. The company's smaller. It's an incredible shrinking giant. And year after year after year after, look, nine of 10 years, this business was shrinking during the 2010s era. And it looked like uh, uh, maybe it was never going to come back to anything great. But it really seems that this business has turned a corner. And today's results prove it. For the year, again, revenue's up 2% for the year. But up again, now three or four years in a row here, to $61.9 billion. And look, the growth in this stock is built on the growth in the business. And a lot of the growth in the business is led by acquisitions. IBM's literally bought dozens of companies in the last few years. They've spent billions and billions of dollars doing so. Uh, the biggest of which, Red Hat, in, in 2020, they paid $33 billion for that. But listening to the conference call today and Jim Cavanaugh, the CFO, um, as I think he's just got a great voice. He doesn't sound like a CFO, but he sounds more like a football coach or something. I don't know. But I, um, I love listening to this guy talk, uh, as well as, of course, Arvind Krishna, the CEO. But um, Jim Kavanaugh talking about what they're doing well, how Red Hat's doing well, how AI and automation is doing well, and maybe how security isn't doing well. And, and maybe, just maybe, 
there's a hint about the next acquisition from IBM. Listen to Jim Cavanaugh, the CFO. Now, when you look at full year performance, you know, Redhead up nine, um, uh, automation, I'm directionally correct, four or five, data and AI, four or five, security, yes, we got an execution gap on security. We got an opportunity to go fix in 2024. So I think it's actually glass half full. The innovation we're, we're fueling in organically, the uh, uh, M&A portfolio, which is scaling nicely with a strategic fit, that gives us the confidence on, on why we're actually taking up and accelerating our growth in 2024. So yeah, M&A, look, when you calculate free cash flow and you know, it doesn't, traditionally you look at free cash flow, it's net income minus the capital expenditures of a business. But when businesses are serial acquirers like IBM is, I think it's fair to think of free cash flow minus acquisitions. And even minus acquisitions, this company had really strong free cash flow in the last year and is predicting $12 billion more than that in free cash flow in 2024. So strong quarter from the company, strong predictions, uh, and things I would never find myself saying about IBM. I'm saying this company seems to have righted the ship. That is exciting. It's remarkable that they were able to turn it around after so long going in one direction. Like a battleship. Something like that. Corey, what is your next drill down? Service now. ServiceNow trades with the ticker now, N-O-W, with a market cap of about $157 billion. Shares were up 5% in the last week, but for the last 12 months, shares are up 72%. Zoinks. What is the story with ServiceNow? Zoinks, he said. Yes. Yeah, ServiceNow. It sounds like me yelling at one of those automated phone things, trying to get a customer service representative on one of the earwires. ServiceNow, now! <laughs> you think what I say, if but you yell it, the AI is going to get you to a person sooner. I may have had that experience with the customer service today, but look, ServiceNow um, is showing up to customers with out-of-the-box generative AI solution and customers are buying. 2.4 billion in subscription revenue in the last quarter, they just announced. That's up 25.5%, that's uh, year over year. And that is more than even the top of their guidance. So really an excellent quarter from this company. Uh, $295 million in profits. And while they predicted revenue growth is going to slow in 2024, it's still going to be pretty strong. And uh, that kind of growth in the stock that you've seen, as you mentioned, 72%, again, it represents what's going on at ServiceNow. They're doing really well in AI, actually delivering products to the marketplace. And when they show up at a customer, any kind of customer, they come with a stack of AI solutions, generative AI especially, so during the conference call uh, today, CEO Bill McDermott, um, he just was asked, just pick one industry, just pick one, like explain to us how this actually works. How are different industries working with AI? And uh, he pulled this one out of his hat. If you think about every single industry, they all have their own personality. So for example, I had the opportunity to meet um, a pharma company and as you know, uh, the average life cycle, for example, for clinical trials is over six and a half years. And this is an industry that drops $200 billion a year on this clinical trial process, and 90% of them fail. So if you just think about that for a minute, you say, well, what can generative AI do to automate document generation, for example, that would be in line with regulatory protocols, and you come up with... Uh, site contracting agreements, for example, 
that also include the patient because the patient has to be engaged in the process, otherwise they won't stay in the trial. And every time a patient opts out, they lose money, 20,000 per patient. So generative AI on the ServiceNow platform obviously can go in there and radically cut down the cycle time of these clinical trials. So CEOs right out of the gates are ready to go. You know, your team, my team, let's figure this out. So there's a real appetite. And I think why I'm so bullish is we have a platform that already has it. So I think a lot of us are trying to imagine how AI is going to change our business and trying to implement AI changes into our business and service now. Um, announcing a new deal or an expanded deal with EY, um, as well as um, some other big business you know, uh, contract announcements. Uh, and the average size of contracts, bigger for this company. So just growth in every metric you want to see, uh, really impressive from Bill McDermott and the fine folks at ServiceNow. Very impressive. And it's always fun to hear the inner workings of how the AI buzzword is actually transforming a company. Yeah, absolutely. Corey, what is your next drill down? ASML. ASML? You know what ticker it uses, Corey? I do. It's ASML. With a market cap Go of figure. about $335 billion. Shares were up 19% in the last week, but for the last 12 months, shares are up 26%. So what's the story with ASML? And do you know what it stands well, um, for? Uh, I don't remember. Um, it's, it was, it's a spin-out from Philips from the 1980s, actually, which is why it's a Dutch company. Huh. And it's something, the L is for lithography, I can't remember. Um, but, um, <laughs> Sounds like um, they made a good choice this, using the abbreviation. Well, it's such a fascinating company. I think this is the most important earnings story of the week um, already here. I mean, AI, look, we all love us some AI, OpenAI, ServiceNow, Microsoft, whatever. But you can't get generative AI until you've got the chips, AMD, NVIDIA, you know, pick your... Pick your poison. But uh, you can't get those chips without the chip manufacturers like TSMC or Samsung. And you can't get the chip manufacturing without the chip manufacturing equipment. And ASML makes the best stuff on the planet. That advanced lithography equipment from ASML is the best stuff out there. They make these giant machines that make little AI possible. Ben, picture, um, when you know, as semiconductors get smaller, more and more powerful, Right. Uh, they have to, they, they, you know, the machines that make them um, conversely get bigger. So if you think about the original idea, if you took a microscope and looked through it at something really small and it fits your eye, well, if you turn the microscope upside down, maybe you would have the big part uh, looking down and creating a small part for a chip. That's kind of how ASM lithography works. It's, a, it's these giant, giant lenses that shoot specialized light to etch the new semiconductors, the machines are getting bigger and bigger and more and more expensive. They're the size of a double-decker bus. And ASML, uh, while the chip industry is kind of in a downturn this year, what we heard from them today, okay, we heard fourth quarter. They report in euros, 7.2 billion euros, 51.4% gross margins. Uh, they spent over a billion this quarter in R&D. But the big deal isn't what happened. The big deal is the orders and what's going to happen. The orders for ASML equipment more than tripled from what they saw in the third quarter. And uh, in spite of, uh, you know, a big headwind with export controls. So selling a chip equipment to China is now illegal, at least this kind of advanced chip equipment. There are export limits from the Dutch government, which is where ASML is based, from the U.S. government, 
The advanced chip equipment can no longer be sold to China. And yet, CEO Peter Winnick says the China business might be down 15%, but the size of the impact on these export controls this year and more in the future is strong, but the business is still stronger. How? Well, here's, here's Peter Winnick. Uh, our uh, China business, strong, yeah. But um, if I said it before, um, the 2023 is really a reflection of our undershipment uh, in 22 and 21, where we basically had the, had the orders. So we, sh we shipped the orders in 23 for that, that, we, that, that we got in you know, 22. Yeah? And the rest of the industry went through a downturn, but we undershipped uh, China uh, significantly. I think it was, they got what we call the order fill rate was less than 50%. So that's all clearly created a situation where you can ship in uh, 2023. Now, the 10 to 15% you referred to, we just gave this as an indication of the size of the impact of the export control. It's about 10 to 15% of the 2023 China sales. Yeah. So that's a kind of, you give you an indication that yes, it has an impact. Clearly it has an impact. But what's our China business? Our China business is significantly uh, in the area of the, mature chips and the let's say the mid-critical chips. And why is that? It goes back to the, the you know, our slides that I showed. When you talk about connectivity, you talk about AI, it's all about advanced, that's not in China. Yeah? But it's when you think about the rest of these trends, whether it's energy transition, EV transition, industrial IoT, uh, the, the rollout of smart grids, uh, uh, these uh, you know, life sciences, that's where the Chinese industrial capability is pretty high and they need a lot of chips. So this is why they are buying that stuff and they will keep buying that stuff. But you're also right that say what we don't sell to China, we'll sell somewhere else because the, our Chinese customers or the end customers in China still buy chips. They buy chips from uh, uh, Korea, they buy chips from Taiwan, they buy chips from the United States. So the advanced chips, they still buy. Yeah, they don't make them, they make the you know, mature chips. Yeah? So that will actually reposition itself. So, so you are right, what we don't sell in terms of advanced chips, still the capacity is needed, we'll sell somewhere else. The other interesting thing here, Ben, is that this business, this, these equipment, uh, the, the equipment made by this company doesn't, even when it gets old and, and kind of um, uh, no longer cutting edge, it's still in use, just making some older chips. Companies have kind of depreciated the heck out of these things. They're essentially running them for almost for free. And so ASML spends a lot of, uh, gets a lot of money just from maintaining old machines because almost all of their old machines are still in use. It's a really fascinating business. But the best machines, they don't sell them to China. As, they, as, as Peter Winnick told us, they'll sell them somewhere else. Very cool. And exciting that we've had three companies doing very well in one episode. It's very lighthearted and, and heartening. Maybe I'm in a good mood. <laughs> Not beating up on the, uh, the losers today. Another winner, and I love this interview we've got coming up here. We're going to go in-depth with a company called Samsara. They have uh, I've got this, they've got this great stock ticker of IoT, Why Internet of Things. They have got the ability to monitor and do logistics of a lot of big things driving around. And whether it's dump trucks or, or bulldozers, or uh, uh, buses, or uh, delivery vehicles. These guys are helping uh, make the roads safer, making drivers' lives easier. Uh, and it's a really neat conversation with the CEO, Sanjay Biswas, right after this. 
The Drill Down is brought to you by ERA. Never miss another critical event or insight ever with ERA. Customize your company watch list and track key events, mentions, filings, and more. All within an easy-to-use, customizable interface. That's ERA, A-I-E-R-A, dot com. All right, welcome back to the Drill Down Podcast. We are joined right now by the CEO of Samsara, uh, and and uh, such an interesting company. Um, Sanjay, how do you pronounce your last name? I want to get it right. Uh, Biswas, Sanjit Biswas. Biswas. Usually we do this before I log on, but here we are, uh, Sanjit Biswas, joining us from San Francisco. Uh, glad to have you. Um, how do you describe what Samsara does? So first, Corey, thanks for having me on. Um, what we're doing is connecting the world of physical operations to the cloud. And the purpose of that is to help increase the efficiency, the safety, and the sustainability of all these companies. So think construction companies, logistics companies, food and beverage distributors, all the folks that run the world's infrastructure. We think data can really help them operate differently, and we're seeing that happen in, in real time. Yeah, you guys have the wonderful and ridiculous stock ticker of IOT. Um, I don't want to talk about the stock, I want to talk about the company. But um, it, it's interesting to me because it, it uh, the logistics connections, I think, is how the company got known, at least to Wall Street. And I know that you guys are taking great pains to say we're more than just construction. But I do think it's it's such a, a fantastic example of what you can do and then what happens when companies deploy your your software. What What is it? Uh, talk to me about the sort of pre-digital cloud world for, and it, we, you can pick your industry if you want, but mm -hmm. what does it look like before you come in and what does it look like after? Sure. Well, let's start with logistics since that's where the business got started. Um, if you think about logistics companies, they have fleets of vehicles, hundreds, maybe thousands of drivers out there making tons of stops. So you can kind of understand the complexity of their operations very intuitively. The way things worked- Well, and indeed, one of the most, the, the classic- math problem of all time, right? It's a traveling salesman, right? It's, you got you know, it. is, is how do you yeah. get from a, a, the most efficient route between many, many different stops? Yeah. But there's all and, kinds of problems that ensue that are not part of that math problem. <laughs> well, and there's a math problem of how do you do the stops, but then there's also the practical problem of, well, are those streets safe? You know, is the driver distracted? There are a bunch of other things that go into the, that, that factor into the logistics there. So what we've done is essentially put sensors on all these trucks. So they're in real time reporting their locations back to the cloud. We have cameras that run AI models to help reduce things like risk that I was talking about earlier, the over-the-road risk of tailgating or maybe distracted driving, those kinds of things. And then we have a bunch of analytics behind the scenes to help think about, should you run those routes a little bit differently? Could you use different vehicles that are maybe more fuel efficient? Um, are there drivers that are better suited for certain tasks, things like that? So all of this is made possible by data. Up until recently, it wasn't feasible to collect all that data with pen and paper. But now you can put inexpensive sensors out in the field, you can process huge amounts of data in the cloud, and then you can use AI models to make sense of all that data. And that's what's unlocking this value for the customer. What were the technological um, breakthroughs or hurdles? What, what things had to happen in order to make this possible? Yeah, in terms Not of just the, the excellent management of your company, which surely <laughs> you have done, but, but beyond that, I mean, there, there must have yeah. been some sort of moments that, that were like, okay, now we can do this with gathering data or sorting through data or processing it with the right kind of semiconductor power at an affordable level? What, what were the real breakthroughs? Yeah, so data is the key. How do we get the data and get it in the cloud? When we started the company in 2015, there were actually a lot of sensors out there. So if you buy a modern car or truck, it's got two, 300 sensors that report into the dashboard, right? Show you everything that's going on in the vehicle. But those vehicles were not reporting into the cloud. So the first thing we built was basically a gateway device that connected all that sensor data to the cloud. It was inexpensive, but it used a 4G network. And that network was already built and, and very powerful. So instead of streaming a YouTube video in HD, we could stream this real-time telemetry into the cloud. That was the 
first big enabler. Once we got the data in the cloud, that's when we started doing things like training AI models. That was the next unlock was you have all this data. How do you make sense of it? No person can look at all of it, but an AI model can and can do it in real time. So that was maybe the second unlock in terms of technology. Yeah, I, I, um, C3.ai, a company down in the peninsula of Silicon Valley that I've done some things for, and Tom Siebel, the CEO, is an old friend and interesting guy. Um, the company has been roundly criticized for once describing itself as an IoT company, an Internet of Things company, strangely your, your stock ticker, and they have mm-hmm. the great stock ticker of AI, by the way, but uh, describing itself as that. And then once they got all this data, as Tom Siebel explains it, they're like, well, now what do we do with it? I guess our customers want an answer. And so when they started figuring out what to do with it, then they were criticized by by some people on Wall Street saying, oh, you changed your story. But it sounds like you went in the same path. You You, you first gathered a lot of data, but then you had to figure out what to do with it. We did. And, you know, what we saw was customers getting value from the data very quickly. So for us, it wasn't so much a pivot. It was an amplification of what was there. And I'll give you an example. DHL, speaking of logistics, they're a customer of ours, those yellow parcel delivery vans. They use our dash cameras to help reduce risk on the road. Um, They saw a 26% reduction in the number of accidents and a 50% reduction in cost. That was almost immediate for them. What wasn't as immediate was the kind of driver impact and the kind of cultural impact they actually saw their retention go up 2x. So that's the kind of thing where once the technology is in, we can spend time with the customer, iterate, add features, figure out what's useful to the driver in the cab. How do you make that experience even better? And then that really kind of amplifies the value of the technology. I don't want to throw DHL under the bus, no pun intended. But in my in my neighborhood, with of all the delivery drivers, there was one DHL driver who was a maniac took the roads twice as fast. This is going back many years, but it was noticeably different. Um, I don't know that it's a corporate a cultural thing. Surely it's not, but it was. it is noticeable with the difference. But let's mm-hmm. unpack that a little bit. Specifically, what kind of safety things happen? Because those yeah. are dramatic numbers you're talking about. What, what, what What's, again, back to the pre-digital experience, the post-digital experience, what is the thing that happens uh, that's different? Yeah. So one of the sort of interesting things that we uh, learned over the last couple of years is the number of fatality accidents in the U.S. over the roads has actually been going up year over year. And it changed yeah. in the in about the last decade. So in the 2010s, the number of accidents started going up. And Shocker when texting that, happens. Yeah, exactly. You remember what we all got in our pocket right around that time. So mobile phone distraction ended up being a very big factor. And all of these fleet managers knew it. They knew what was going on but they didn't have a way to prevent it because you can't send a ride-along driver or a driving coach with every single driver. It's not practical or feasible. So one of the technologies developed is something called nudges. And what that is is the dash camera it uses an AI model to detect in real time if you're, you've got the bad habit of checking your phone. And it just it, it beeps at you, it gives you an alert, kind of tries to break you of that habit. It's not telling on you or sending anything to the cloud. It's simply just there to help increase your awareness. And that itself increases uh, or decreases the risk massively. So that's one example. And then the other one is our bad habits like speeding or rolling stop signs. We all develop these habits when you get a little bit casual or careless. But imagine if you were driving for eight or 10 hours a day. That's a lot of risk you're taking on. So if you can break these habits, if you can change these behaviors by using AI and do it in a very kind of driver-friendly, constructive way, it really changes uh, risk and changes behavior. And yet you're saying that um, uh, retention, like that would seem annoying to me if I was a driver who liked to roll through stop signs and right. drive fast and get back to my family and you know, whatever. Well, yeah. You know, those habits are also choices, not just, you know, uh, and I would think the drivers would find that annoying. But you're saying retention went up for yes. DHL. 
That's right. And actually what happens more often than not is drivers get accused of taking off a mirror, rear-ending someone, and they have a big corporate logo on the side of their vehicle. And so that's actually one of the big reasons drivers like this technology is nine times out of 10, roughly, they're not at fault. They're able to exonerate themselves. So that's one. And then two is this is, again, occupational risk for them. Like this is not them driving on their free time, going you know out to the beach or something. They're running their route. And so what they care about is does the company care? Or is the company just trying to get us to deliver as many parcels as possible? Turns out these companies do care. Their interests are aligned. And that is a cultural thing that actually comes through. So they'll do things like driver rewards programs, like the safest driver gets a Starbucks gift card. And that recognition alone uh, is something that the drivers really appreciate. That's so interesting. Um, and again, the results, you know, combing through your investor documents and the result, the th- those case studies on your website are just Fascinating. 50% decrease in speeding is one of the things one of your yeah. customers talked about, um, which is shocking. Yeah. And, you know, the the results in aggregate are also just staggering. So we estimate we've helped prevent about 200,000 crashes on the road in the last year alone. So that feels really good from uh, our perspective in terms of the impact we're able to have on the world. Now, how do you charge for this? It's a subscription. So it's, a, you know, basically per asset per year subscription. If you think about each one of those DHL vans, that would be an asset. And that scales with the size of customers. So some of our customers have tens of thousands. Other customers might have a few hundred. And that, but this, by the way, extends to construction equipment and other kinds of assets as well. And what's the typical hardware expense that goes into the vehicles and how is that changing over time? So we don't charge for the hardware. It's included in the subscription. And the reason for that is some of these newer vehicles, these newer trucks are already connected to the cloud. They have a SIM card in them. They're reporting up to the cloud. And that's great because it means the data feed is there. And our value is in analyzing the data, providing those insights and turning those into action. So we don't charge anything for the hardware up front. We just charge that annual recurring subscription license. Well, I'm thinking from your end, though, I wonder, because that's what, kind of what it's getting at is mm-hmm. as car, you know, looking at text in- instruments results, for example, and yeah. so many of the semiconductors that go into cars and the, and the rising amount of silicon content in the cars mm-hmm. and vehicles writ large would suggest that maybe your costs of hardware installation go down as the silicon content in the vehicle go up. That's right. And that was an insight we had in the very, very early days of the company was we needed to bridge the gap of how do you get the data into the cloud? But we knew even in 2015, Tesla was out, right? And they had these connected cars. You could see it coming. BMW's high-end vehicles already had SIM cards in them. And we saw that curve of the cost curve coming down and the technological sophistication going up. So our alignment was always with, hey, eventually everything's going to get connected. The value, though, is in making sense of the data, actually taking action based on it. I want to talk a little bit about your background just briefly, but I know that you, you started another company earlier on, mm-hmm. sold it to Cisco for a great big stinking number, over a billion dollars, as I read somewhere. That's right. Um, uh, and I wonder, I was talking to somebody recently about the notion of serial entrepreneurs and how exciting it was to be around people like that, as I usually am at Shack 15 in San Francisco in the Ferry Building. Mm-hmm. And uh, this investor I was talking to is, we hate serial entrepreneurs. They just want to start things and sell them. I I don't know. That's it's a pejorative look at it. There's something to that maybe, but uh, I wonder what it is you've learned from now starting two, you know, multi-billion dollar companies. Yeah. The way that I think about it is products are how, if you're an engineer, it's, it's how you can have real impact in the world. So our first company was called Meraki. It was a networking company. And we basically had a new way of building really large computer networks like Wi-Fi networks. And this is back in the mid two thousands when Wi-Fi was a pretty new technology um, John, my co-founder and I, we started out as grad students at MIT. We were technologists. We just, we, we felt that there was a new way to build networks and we thought it could be really useful for people. 
the most practical way to get that technology out in the world was via product. So that's what we did. We started that company, eventually did become part of Cisco Systems a little over a decade ago. And now those products are everywhere. You walk into a Starbucks coffee shop, you go into an airport, a bunch of hospitals, my kids' schools. I, I see our products uh, everywhere. And that's incredible. So that's why we, we start companies is to go have impact in the world. In some cases, it makes sense to sell that business and make it part of something bigger. Like Cisco was very well-established business when we sold it and increased the impact of the product line massively. It's many tens of times bigger than it was when we sold it. With Samsara, we're building all of that from scratch because there's not a Cisco systems in our market. So for us, it was actually about, okay, we have to build the corporate infrastructure to get this out in the world and have impact. But that's what drives and, us. And having done that once, you have probably mistakes that you've you, you probably are finding new mistakes, not the same old ones, at least. We, we still make mistakes, uh, for sure. But we did learn a couple of things along the way, and that enabled us to scale even faster the second time through. And let me, let me ask you last, I don't, I don't want to get too far afield, but you're in San Francisco. Mm-hmm. Um, as, as I travel, maybe as you travel, I get the question all the time. It's kind of upsetting to me as a Bay Area person here, like, how is it in San Francisco? How bad is it? Is it really what you see on TV? Uh, why are you in San Francisco let alone day to day, that's a different question about remote work, but why, mm-hmm. why San Francisco? What do, you, what do you get out of being in this city that is so uh, widely maligned, including by our, the natives? Yeah, well, the, the brand certainly has shifted around over the last decade or two. Um, for us, it, well, maybe two things. One is we're a flexible work company. So I happen to be based out of our headquarters office in San Francisco, but the majority of our employees are all over. So we have uh, employees in hubs that are ranging from, you know, here in California, uh, all the way down into San Diego, um, all the way out uh, across the US, even into Europe. So that's actually worked really well for us in terms of access to talent. The reason our office is here, and this is where we started. And so from an innovation perspective, there's still a lot going on out here. There's some great talent, and we want to be able to have access to all the talent uh, that's relevant to Samsara. Um, well, uh, I want to be access to, have access to all the talent in the Bay Area too. I'm glad we're both here. Yeah. And I'm glad you're here on the Drill Down Podcast. We're grateful for your time. Sanjay Biswa is the CEO of Samsara. Coming up right after this, The Bite, one number that tells us a whole lot more about Samsara. The Drill Down is brought to you by Futurum Group, where analysts, researchers, advisors, content creators, and marketing experts help business leaders anticipate and understand shifts in their industries and build strategies to leverage disruptive innovation. With deep analysis, Futurum Group's extensive industry experience delivers reliable research and data, thought leadership, and actionable advice to help you with your strategy and go-to-market efforts. Futurum Group. And we're back with the drill down to bite the one number that tells us a whole lot. Samsara, fascinating company. And as you comb through their investment research, I saw a number that really jumped out at me. Five out of 10. Five out of 10 of the top waste management companies, let's call that half the garbage trucks, are digitally managed using Samsara software. That means garbage truck telematics, equipment monitoring, video-based safety, site visibility, connected forms, all that stuff uh, touched by Samsara at half of all the biggest waste management companies, Ben. It's not just a Tony Soprano saying, get that thing over there. Carmela. No, I'm not going to do Tony Soprano anymore. I could do it all day, but I won't. Thank you for listening to Futurums The Drill Down. I'm Corey Johnson. Thanks to Ben Wilson, our fabulous co-host, and importantly, our editor extraordinaire. 
Hugh Churum is the drill down of the production of 6-5 Media.